texts, tweets, emails, and social media messages drive our days. In the midst of a pandemic, more and more people are feeling disconnected, isolated, and alone. Reconnecting and building meaningful relationships may only be one neighborhood away, or one world-famous neighbor away. Journalist Courtman takes us inside the legacy of connecting personal letters from Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, to thousands of neighbors he never met, but who he touched deeply. All of that and more on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? excited for our conversation today on Therefore What and uh, super pleased to have Court Mann, the Assistant Arts and Entertainment Editor at the Deseret News, joining us today. Court, thanks for stopping in. Happy to be here. When you first talked to me about this piece that you've been working on for almost a year now uh, about Mr. Rogers uh, and, you know, the the world needs a, a little more Mr. Rogers, uh, I think, than we've ever needed, not the Jim Carrey version uh, on Saturday Night Live. Uh, but people are looking for that connection and, and building trust and doing all of those things that Mr. Rogers did uh, for so many over the years. Uh, but you took a really interesting dive into something that I, I thought I was pretty good at, writing letters, handwritten notes. Uh, and then I started reading through your piece and I thought, holy cow, Mr. Rogers was not just on another planet. He's like in a, another galaxy when it comes to the power of a letter and a handwritten response. What did you learn? I learned a lot, and it's something that I have been constantly thinking about this whole time that I've been working on the story, and especially during this year as we've been just so separated physically. Yeah. But I think essentially his letters that he wrote to other people, which are truly um, astounding in their in their scope, is really a testament to uh, what he really believed, which is that every person mattered yeah. and um, that every person's feelings and thoughts and experiences were really valid. And the way that he responded to the letters was really telling because he would respond to every single thing that a person wrote. Um, One of the people I interviewed who was a journalist who had a friendship with Rogers um, said that if you put something on the fourth page of your letter, Mr. Rogers would make sure that he responded to something that you had said on that fourth page. You know, there was no, there was, there was no stone left unturned. One of the people I interviewed in the story, uh, you know, he wrote Mr. Rogers when he was five years old. And he wrote, I think, eight sentences to Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers responded back with five paragraphs. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and, and it's so interesting because it, it is easy to kind of do that sweeping generality back uh, is how we often respond to people. Uh, but the fact that he would go through in such detail and then respond to re- literally everything that was on the page and probably a few things that were between the lines uh, I think is is really telling about someone uh, who asked if we wanted to be his neighbor, uh, I think was was pretty interesting. I have to get to these numbers from it because these are just mind boggling to me. You have in your story, again, this is a court man uh, story at Deseret.com uh, talking about Mr. Rogers and just his prolific connection with uh, people through written letters. It says, if Rogers' old colleagues are exaggerating the numbers, uh, then Rogers uh, would have written replies to some 40,000 people. Uh, if his colleagues aren't exaggerating, then that number could be over 200,000. That's that's just staggering. So as you were interviewing uh, for this piece and talking to people, I mean, 200,000 correspondents, that's crazy. So, yeah, uh, the word that I think I use in the piece is preposterous. 
it seems preposterous on its face when you think that Mr. Rogers could have actually literally written individual replies to some 200,000 people. You know, for scale in the story, I, I, I say that the largest, you know, stadium in the world is in North Korea and it currently seats 114,000. And you think about, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I th- in my mind, what I picture is I think of the, I think of Freddie Mercury and Queen singing at, you know, at Wembley Stadium. Yeah. And that whole arena full of people, which is not even as big as this other stadium in North Korea, yeah. right? And to think that, that uh, Mr. Rogers did that, it seems, uh, it seems baffling. But really, when you, when you get down to it, no, Mr. Rogers did that thing. He wrote to that many people, somewhere between 40,000 and, and 200,000. But um, however you cut it, it's pretty remarkable. And it's a testament to uh, the consistency and the discipline with which he lived his life. Yeah, it's, uh, so amazing. And he was doing more than just uh, – this was not just uh, a celebrity responding to fan mail. Uh, he really was offering people a relationship. Absolutely. And, um, you know, multiple people that I interviewed for the story that worked with Rogers over and over and over again, they would reiterate to me, this is not fan mail. We don't call it fan mail. We call them viewers. And we don't call Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood a TV show. We call it a program mm. or we call it a television visit. And, you know, that was uh, something that they um, really, really wanted to make sure I understood. And so the way that he responded to the letters you know, absolutely speaks to how seriously he, he took that. Yeah, because it was it was the relationship that, that mattered. And, and it's I, to me, that's one of the important lessons in all of this is that he that takes time. It, it takes a lot of time to do that kind of letter uh, that's not, you know, just cut and pay. All of us are pretty good at cut and paste, doing the quick text. Uh, all of those things just vanish away. Uh, but he was doing things that were really designed not just for the moment, but really as a legacy. Absolutely. And um a really important component of the letters is that he viewed them as his means of understanding whether his show was on the right track. This, these letters were not sort of peripheral to his work. They were so central and they were what allowed him to know what to write about or, and what to talk to kids about and, and, and in what way to do it. The letters are just as much a part of, of his work as the show was. Yeah. Or the, the program. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Me, Be careful. It's the, yeah, na- it's the neighborhood. They'll have, they'll have my head if I don't correct that. <laughs> don't don't mess up. Don't mess with the neighborhood. They will. Uh, they'll get you. Uh, one of the people that you interviewed uh, for this was uh, Alexander Claren, who's the uh, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins uh, Carey School of Business in Baltimore, who did some pretty interesting research around some of these later letters. Uh, I want to play a little bit of audio from your interview and then have you ha- give us some insight uh, and some backstory there. Rogers, I think, is very interested in, in authentic dialogue, and, and he, you can see in the letters especially how he kind of rhetorically situates himself always as learning from the letter writer and, and learning, you know, how the letter is informing him and his practice, and I think very genuinely. So he doesn't necessarily place himself in the role of a, of a teacher in the traditional sense of kind of having all of this knowledge and imparting it onto the students, but he sees himself as an equal participant in the search for for knowledge and, and understanding. Yeah, you know, Alexandra was a, a great person to talk to. She wrote a book all about this called On Becoming Neighbors, The Communication Ethics of Fred Rogers. It's a very academic book. It's not necessarily like light bedtime reading, <laughs> but it is incredibly insightful. And, um, you know, she she started that book as a college dissertation, as a, as a grad school dissertation, I believe, mm-hmm. and realized it was it was worth writing a book about. So I can relate to that, <laughs> diving into something <laughs> and realizing there's a lot more to it than you than you think. But... She um, 
she had a lot of great insights and ultimately I think what she really revealed was the way that people who wrote to Mr. Rogers viewed the viewed themselves and their relationship with Rogers as a thing that already existed mm. and as a thing that he already understood. So, you know, they they quickly become quite forthcoming mm-hmm. in the details about their lives. Uh, there's a letter in the story in my article that's uh, a mom writing to Mr. Rogers, whose five year old son had recently died, and I mean, it is uh, it's it's pretty heart wrenching. Yeah. Um, but people just felt like they already had a relationship with Fred Rogers, that he knew them, that he was their friend, and that they could just immediately treat this correspondence like that. And yeah. uh, that's pretty remarkable. I yeah, think. and I think that's indicative of one, as uh, the professor said, it's uh, it's this idea that he was the learner. Uh, he wasn't pontificating, you know, giving great wisdom to whoever had written him a letter. He was learning from the writer. Uh, and part of that, I think, shows in uh, the way the program went, how the neighborhood was run. And he was a, a learner along with everyone else. And it was not him giving a monologue of lines. Uh, even when he was the only one talking, it was still a dialogue, which is uh, a real lost art form. Yeah, you know, um, I think the fact that he treated – uh, his TV program like a dialogue and not a monologue is is something that is really easy to overlook because of the fact that he is just talking to a camera. Right. Um, and so it's easy to think of it like that, but he never, never thought of it like that. And I think a big reason why the letters are important is not because we're lacking in content that's Mr. Rogers related. Yeah. You know, we have over 900 episodes of his show. Which is amazing yeah, in and of you itself. Yeah. <laughs> And he wrote dozens of books. He wrote all the music for his TV program. Um, you know, he he gave hundreds of speeches. So it's not like we're lacking, but the letters speak to what he really believed, which mm-hmm. was that his job was to communicate to people individually. Yeah. And that can get lost when we think of his show as something that is just going out to thousands of uh, nameless, faceless people. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things you pointed out, uh, Court, that I really appreciated was that uh, even – even his own staff, even his right-hand man, uh, Bill Isler, uh, was often surprised at the at the reach and the scope and the just the sheer volume uh, of things. You were able to have a conversation with him as well. Let's listen to uh, to his response. It was unbelievable to me the people that I would meet who who Fred had responded to. There are some incredible letters about he was the only male role, role model in, in their lives, children who were abused or neglected. All they had was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I mean, some of the letters were absolutely overwhelming. And he would share those with the staff. I mean, he would talk about the importance of the work by what he was hearing from people. So so important in terms of that connection. I want to play one more uh, excerpt from uh, your conversation with Bill Isler. In, in terms of how this, how this exchange always went uh, between Mr. Rogers and, and those that followed him. Fred would always we always say that, that giving is a very simple thing to do because when you give, you're always in control. When you receive, you have no control whatsoever. You are totally exposed, and you always have to be a grateful receiver. And what you are is a grateful receiver of people's remarks. And I think one of the ways Fred lived that is that people were going to take the time to write him something. He was going to take the time to let them know that that was a valuable gift to him and something that he wanted to recognize and keep. Such a great lesson. Yeah, you know, uh, Bill Eisler was such a valuable resource to me as I worked on this story. The story started with just one interview with a a local woman who had a relationship with Rogers, uh, who had a friendship with him, 
Uh, she's actually a, f- a former reporter here at the Deseret News, Elaine Jarvik. So that's how it started. It started very small, but as I kind of worked my way up the, the Fred Rogers food chain, as it were, <laughs> I was able to talk to Bill Eisler, and um, he he was the one that really helped me get in contact with a lot of these people that were close to Fred, uh, people like his coworkers. Uh, I was able to interview Fred's wife, Joanne Rogers. Mm-hmm. Bill really made that possible. He kind of calls the shots, and so I was glad that he he felt like I was uh, someone that could be trusted to tell the story. Yeah, uh, it's so important. And uh, as you look at some of those lessons and some of those uh, some of those conversations, uh, actually, let's sneak in one more here. This is uh, from uh, Hedda Sherapan. Is that the right? Yep pronunciation there. Uh, obviously, she uh, dealt with a lot of the incomings and, and outgoings in the uh, Fred Rogers universe. Uh, I found this one just fascinating. The mail was so important to Fred. When you think about it, he was doing his communicating to a television camera and wanting to be really helpful, offering meaningful communication to children. But you have no idea who's on the other side or how they're reacting. And he wanted to honor the people who had written. There was always that sense of how grateful he was that people had written. What he was offering was a relationship. And the letters brought the other side of that relationship. It's amazing how they keep coming back to what he was offering. It was a relationship. It wasn't wasn't words, wasn't wisdom. It was a relationship. Yeah. Um, you know, Bill Eisler said that uh, Fred often described himself as an emotional archaeologist he was fascinated with knowing why people did the things they did. And so, you know, as, as Bill said it, Fred's interest in letters was really just an extension of his deep, deep curiosity about people. He just wanted to know why they were the way they were. Joanne Rogers told me, she said, you know, Fred was not one for cocktail parties because uh, he really didn't do small talk. <laughs> I thought that was a that was a pretty apt way of describing uh, Rogers. He had no interest in empty pleasantries. Yeah. Wow. Uh, That's a topic for another day. We're going to come back to that one because I I think we're sort of stuck in cocktail party conversations uh, a lot of days in a lot of places and spaces. Uh, I want to jump to a minute uh, for a minute to a uh, an excerpt from your piece, Court, uh, that really came from this uh, 1969. Most people remember the the Save PBS (laughs) speech before the Senate. But you included a, a quote in there that I want to read and then have you Give me some context to in terms of what it what it meant to him. Uh, so this is quoting uh, Mr. Rogers. He said, it is my conviction that the youth who are in revolt are being revolted by our failure to know who they really are. They are tired of being enrolled, assigned, programmed, graded and molded uh, from without. It is a person's creativity which allows him to make something of its, of himself. It is this natural human creativity for which I have such deep respect. It is this creativity which must be fostered far beyond the five-year-olds. Yeah, you know, Alexander Claren, one of the folks I interviewed, told me this quote. And, you know, it's it's not from his famous speech that saved PBS, but it's from that same year. Uh, uh, you know, he testified to the Senate. And it's a real shame to me that this particular speech is not one that is, uh, you know, referenced. Yeah. I don't even know if there's video of it. Because I don't think it was as public as his uh, other speech where he really advocated for uh, funding for PBS. But I just am so struck by how bold it is. And we don't think of Rogers as somebody who would say, yes, I side with the youth in revolt. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, though. (laughs) But he was. You know, he absolutely was. And what he says about creativity is really important. There's There's a great 
essay in the New York Times that I would recommend anybody read. And it's called The Mr. Rogers No One Saw. A woman who had been friends with Rogers for almost 40 years uh, wrote it. I was able to interview her for the story as well. Um, but in the in the piece, she talks a lot about how Fred Rogers viewed creativity. And she really captures his playful, creative spirit. And And Rogers talked a lot about how he wanted to help people realize that the things that they create have have such deep value and how a lot of people's own personal struggles arise in his belief arise from the fact that they don't believe that that the things that they're creating have real meaning and have real value. So his his, uh, his emphasis on creativity and fostering that among young people is uh is quite important. Yeah, so so critical. I'm going to come back to this quote uh, numerous times because I think there are a lot of youth today who feel that they are being enrolled, assigned, programmed, graded, and molded from without. Uh, there's a great lesson in there for uh, every parent or grandparent out there. Therefore, what? As we come down the home stretch, uh, of course, the uh, the program is uh, therefore what. And so we get to ask you the therefore what question. You've been working on this uh, for almost a year. Uh, we've been on for about 20 minutes now having this conversation. For those who, who read your piece and those who listen to this podcast, what's the therefore what? What do you hope people think differently? What do you hope they do differently as a result? Well, I guess probably the most succinct way I could say it is that our words matter. Rogers understood that as good as anyone ever has. Working on this piece, constantly thinking about the way that he approached communicating one-on-one has made me reflect a lot on the ways that I communicate with people one-on-one. You know, a lot of my life is involved with mass communication, being a journalist, and um, yet uh, the one-on-one communication still is super important. And there's been times where I have thought in the moment, uh, how would Fred Rogers respond to this incredulous Facebook comment or this insensitive text message? And sometimes I've taken that to heart and I've I've responded in a way that I think Fred Rogers would be proud of. And other times I haven't. And the difference for me now is that um, the specter of Fred Rogers is there kind of looming over (laughs) these communications that I have. And um, so I think ultimately our words matter. And Fred Rogers and his approach to the letters helps us really see the impact that we can have if we really treat every piece of one-on-one communication as... Uh, valuable and um, impactful and significant. Yeah, fantastic. Court Mann, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Boyd. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on deseretnews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?